All right, well, we continue today our sermon series on the discipleship pathway, a pathway to growth and maturity in Christ. I want to share with you a passage from Hebrews chapter five that kind of gets to the heart of what we're striving to accomplish with this, not only with this sermon series, but with the tools that we've developed to go with it. In Hebrews chapter five, the writer says, we have a great deal to say to you about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Kind of a harsh tone that the author of Hebrews strikes here, but I'm sure you've experienced the frustration of trying to explain something to somebody only to have to do it again and again and again. What is the problem? Are they not listening? Do they not comprehend? Are they incapable of following the instructions? And here we see the same thing can happen in our spiritual lives. We can get stuck in a spiritual rut wherein we're no longer growing in maturity in Christ. We need to hear the same things that we should have already grabbed a hold of. And we are still at the beginning. The the author of Hebrews refers to this as spiritual infancy. Now, there's nothing wrong with infancy. We happen to read this text on a day when we celebrated infancy. Infancy is good. It's, it's the right place to begin. However, when one remains in spiritual infancy, there, there are problems that need to be addressed. There are senses, according to Hebrews 5, that need to be awakened. And so we don't want to be Hebrews 5 Christians. We don't want to be stuck in spiritual infancy, not able to move on to more mature things in Christ. We want to be Hebrews 6 Christians. Let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. And this we, see, we find all throughout the New Testament, this call to be mature followers and disciples of Christ. Now, this is not something that happens overnight. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes training. Honestly, it takes trials. It's, it's not something we can fast track. You can't, you can't sit here and say, well, I received Christ last week, this, year, this week I'm gonna be a mature disciple of Christ. But you can take steps and you can commit to the process of growing in maturity in Christ. Quite frankly, that process takes longer than we want it to. It's not uncommon among those of us who have been Christians for a longer period of time to grow frustrated with the pace of our spiritual maturation. Nonetheless, it's important that we are committed to the process. We're committed to the pathway. And so this is what we did. At the beginning of last, somewhere around the beginning of last year, we started to kind of think these things through and say, what does it look like at at redemption to grow from spiritual infancy into spiritual maturity? What is that pathway? 
More importantly, what does it look like in the scriptures? Are there, are there scriptural examples? Is there a pathway defined in scripture? Now, when we ask questions like that of the Bible, we have, we have to be aware of the fact that the Bible is, it's not, a, it's not necessarily a, I don't wanna say guidebook, it's not a handbook necessarily that says chapter 10 is the pathway of spiritual maturity. It's a series of books and in the New Testament, it's, it's four gospels, it's a historical account in the book of Acts, and then a bunch of letters, and then the book of Revelation. And so it's not the kind of handbook that we often think in terms of with our, with our modern minds. And so we have, to, we have to do a little digging. You gotta look closely at what the scriptures say and say, are there, are there patterns of spiritual growth that we can identify here? And of course, we're not the first ones to do this. This has been undertaken many times and uh, we consulted what a lot of other people have to say about this. And this is what we came up with. Go ahead and put that first slide up there on the screen. This is what we came up with as a general pathway of spiritual maturity. Everyone begins as a seeker. A seeker, if, if we are to use biblical language, a seeker is a sinner who is dead in their sins, not in proper relationship with God. It's somebody who is still seeking for life, somebody who is still seeking after the truth. We all begin there. And then for, for many of us, something happens, and that something that happens is what we talked about last week. We respond to the gospel. And as we respond to the gospel, we enter into a new stage of spiritual growth, what we the language we're using here to describe that is a believer. Somebody who has believed the gospel, who's put their faith and trust in Jesus. They understand that Jesus died as a substitute for them on the cross and they now believe the gospel. Now this is, this is in, in one sense the most significant step because the Bible describes this as literally going from death to life. To be, to be a believer, to respond to the gospel is to be born again. It is to now be uh, an heir of eternal life. It is, it is to, to now have the opportunity to live the life that God created us to live. It's a huge step. And yet it ought to be the shortest stage of spiritual development. It's kind of like... <laughs> Maybe this is, I don't know if this is a helpful illustration or not, but it's kind of like the birthing process. Once, you know, the birth, the, the physical birth happens and everybody's all excited and uh, everybody's paying attention and taking pictures and celebrating, assuming everybody's in good health, we're celebrating everything that has taken place uh, and you go home with the baby and, and it's all you can think about, but pretty soon, you want to see some things start to happen. You want to make sure that that child is eating properly. You want to make sure that child is eliminating properly. You want to make sure that that child is responding to sounds and responding to sights. And, you know, as the days turn into weeks, it's expected that you're going to start to see dramatic changes. And when we don't see dramatic changes, we know that something's wrong. However, it, in the, spiritual, in, the, in, in the spiritual side of this illustration, we, 
we welcome people with joy when they become believers, and then we seem to accept them staying in this infancy phase, well, if they want to, forever. <laughs> we just celebrate the fact that they've been born again and, and allow people to remain as spiritual infants. So often we don't have the same expectations, though we should, that we have of spiritual infants, new believers, that we have of physical, natural infants. And so this should be the briefest phase, but, but as Hebrews 5 shows us, so often people remain here. But assuming they don't, assuming they don't remain in the, the stage of believer, they become a follower. Now a follower is somebody who begins to not only believe what is true of Jesus, but to obey the commands of Jesus. A follower is marked by commitment and obedience. A follower who is some, someone who begins to do the things that Jesus commanded. They start to pray, they start to serve, they start to labor in the gospel, and they, they begin to follow the example that Jesus set for disciples. And we see this in the life and ministry of Jesus himself. He called his first disciples, and what did he say to them? He said, to come and follow me. He didn't say, come and just listen to me, come and watch me. He said, come and follow me. And what he meant by that wasn't just physically accompany me, though that's the first part of that, but we see as his ministry unfolds, what he really meant was do the things I do and do the things I command. And he begins to progressively place those commands on them and to teach them what it means to be a follower. But we, 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 need, another, we need another word for, to distinguish between somebody who begins to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and somebody who has gone on to significant spiritual maturity. And so we chose the word disciple. Now, at this point, some of you might be getting uncomfortable with our language, uh, and rightfully so, because what is the difference, is there really a difference between a believer and a follower and a disciple? Yes and no. Yes, only in as much as we assign a difference, and that's what we're doing. And some people don't like that. Some people don't, don't, don't like that sort of specificity. Some people might say, well, and, and I would agree with this part of it, every believer is supposed to be a disciple. Every, every follower better be a believer. You know, there's, there, it's, it's sort of an artificial distinction that we are making. However, we're doing that for good reason. We're doing that because it makes it helpful to understand our progress in the spiritual journey that we're on. It's helpful to, to, to see these as distinct stages so that we can begin to diagnose where we're at spiritually and what it, what it looks like to, according to Hebrews chapter six, to go on into maturity, to become a mature follower of Christ, what we call here as a disciple. A disciple is somebody who has embraced in totality, the lifestyle that Jesus has called us to live. Now, nobody lives that out perfectly. We, we in, our, in our original core values document, we talk about just daily discipleship 
being a, a life of grace. We talk about things like imperfect progress. Nobody, nobody among us is, is ever in this life going to perfectly live out the life of discipleship. However, we hope to see marked and noticeable growth as time and effort come together as we grow in maturity in Christ. And so these are the sort of four stages of the discipleship pathway. Everyone begins as a seeker. It's, we, we have not yet responded to the gospel. And, and why seeker? You might say, well, some people aren't seeking. Some people don't, don't wanna hear the gospel. And, and ultimately, we chose seeker because we think, we believe the testimony of scripture that all of us have an inner struggle between what we see and what we believe to be true of God. Even the atheist who, who, who says they have come to a decisive a conclusion that there is no God is somehow seeking for what only God can offer in life. And so we call them seekers. They may not identify themselves as such. And then we move to the stage of believer, from believer to follower, and from follower to disciple. How do we get from one stage to the next, and how do we know when someone has taken the step into the next one? And so the next slide is gonna show us, these are very hard to see on here, uh, the key out, but I'll say them out loud, and you'll, you'll have access to this image. Some of you have already noticed, hey, I recognize this, it's been hanging up in the fellowship area for the past several months. So we've identified the key characteristic of each of these four stages. A seeker is marked by curiosity. They, they are exploring, what, whether they're exploring through attending church or reading the Bible, or whether they're exploring by partying or seeking um, wealth or whatever it is, that they're saying, will this lead to my happiness? Will this give me life? They're marked by curiosity. A believer, in contrast to that, is somebody who's marked by faith. They have believed the gospel, they've put their faith in Christ. A follower, what distinguishes a follower, a, a follower from a believer is the attitude of commitment. I not only believe, but I, I not only have faith, but I am going to live my life accordingly. And then an even greater expression of commitment is what disciples are marked by, which is sacrifice. Disciples understand the command of Jesus to take up our cross and to follow him. Disciples lay down their lives for the kingdom and for others to know Jesus Christ. So those on that outer circle, those are the key kind of markers or characteristics of people in each of those stages. Then on the inner circle, the next slide that you'll see, what is, what is, is there a main step is there a main action step that, that you need to, to take in order to move from, from one stage of maturity into the next? And you see, to, become, to go from a seeker to a believer, you must respond to the gospel. By the way, you, you should notice that that was our message last week, respond to the gospel. This sermon series, we're actually taking that inner circle and we're gonna look at each of those four action steps and preach sermons on them. So last week we talked about responding to the gospel. This week we're gonna talk about the next one, to go from a believer to a follower. Remember, a follower is committed to obeying the things that Jesus commanded. One of the first things that Jesus commands believers to do is to be baptized. 
And so in order to go from, follow, from believer to follower, you must be baptized. To be, to, to be a follower, which is marked by commitment, but to desire to, to take the next step into being a disciple, the key, the key action step that we notice here is that they begin to take initiative. They take initiative for their own spiritual growth. Followers who are becoming disciples no longer are are primarily fed by showing up to church on Sunday once a week. Followers who are growing into disciples begin to self-feed. They they no longer only respond when somebody up front says, hey, we need some volunteers on Saturday to help with this, but now they're starting to look at the world around them through the lens of the gospel, and they're starting to think, what can I do this week to make an impact for the gospel. They're people who are taking initiative. They are no longer need to be held uh, hand in hand and guided along the spiritual journey, but now they know what to do and they do it. And that makes them, according to our language here, a disciple. This is what Jesus desires, that we all become disciples. And what do disciples do? Ultimately, the action step that disciples begin to focus on is they reproduce. Disciples reproduce. Disciples make other disciples. Disciples, now they, they, they go to a small group not thinking, what can I get out of this? They go to a small group and they say, what can I contribute to the spiritual life of other people? They, they participate in ministry, not just because it gives them some sort of sense of satisfaction, but they understand the, the role that they play in advancing the kingdom of God. And they, they begin to reproduce the spiritual life that they have experienced in other people. Now, if you're like me, you think that looks great on paper. You might think that doesn't look great. You might think that's confusing, and you might be right. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, I think it, it might take a couple of times to look at it, but you begin to latch onto it. You have the four stages in the middle. You have the outer, or, or the, or the largest circle. I shouldn't say in the middle. You have the four stages in the largest circle. You have the outer circle, which is the key characteristic of each of those stages. And then you have the inner circle, which is the action steps that, that we need to, to commit ourselves to along this pathway. And, and yet we made it a circle to represent the idea of reproduction. The spiritual life in Christ is not a linear journey. It is a journey that as we go around the circle, we are intended to be assisting others. When seekers become believers, they don't have to wait to become a disciple to reproduce. They won't fully be able to reproduce disciples until they are one themselves. But they don't have to wait. They can reach out to their other seeker friends and say, hey, I've discovered something that, that makes sense to me. I've, I've started to think a lot about Jesus or I've started to think about the Bible and the message that is, why don't you come with me? Believers can, can begin to, to help others take this journey of the discipleship pathway as well. Followers can do the same. To be a follower, you don't have to wait until you understand everything to begin to invest in other people. You can simply grab somebody by the arm and say, why don't you come with me on this journey? And, and, and then sometimes we'll even see that we don't all move at the same pace. Some of us move from seeker to disciple in a matter of a few short years. 
some of us, as I mentioned earlier, kind of get stuck. And we can get stuck uh, at, at any point on this journey. You'll also notice, in terms of this not being a linear timeline that follows an, the exact same pattern every time, is sometimes you go from seeker to believer to follower to disciple, and maybe you've never been baptized. Or sometimes you get baptized before you're actually a believer. And so we can, we certainly can, can get these things out of order. I used the example last week of uh, going down to Georgia when I was 12 years old and my younger cousin having a truck and driving me around in his truck. He was younger than me. He didn't have a driver's license. He had the steps out of order. Talked about my daughter who, who didn't begin to walk until she was six years old. There's, there's lots of ways, the same thing is true of the spiritual journey to maturity. There's lots of ways that we can get these things out of order. Nonetheless, I think it's very helpful it's very helpful to have an identified pathway. This is generally speaking. That's it. Don't take it for any more than that. Generally speaking, the way we see spiritual maturity progress throughout the life of a disciple. Okay? You may have questions about that. I'd be happy to talk about anything that, that comes up that you have questions. I would also expect that along the way, some people might feel like their toes are stepped on. They might feel like their feathers are a little ruffled. You might, you might even take some offense at some of this. We've done our best to minimize offense. Let me give you one example of that. Is if, if you were to look up, if you just Google search discipleship pathway or stages of spiritual growth or something like that, you'll find most people today use language that follows our natural human development. Most people today use the language of spiritually dead, spiritual infants, spiritual adolescents, and spiritual adults. Now, the problem I have with that is they're all offensive except for the last one. <laughs> you're either spiritually dead or you're a spiritual baby or you're a spiritual teenager, which doesn't necessarily have a positive connotations. And so we've tried to adopt a language that says, no, 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 no. They're all, they're all good. The idea is to grow. It's okay wherever you're at. You might be a, a spiritual infant in reality, having been a Christian for 20 years. And we're not here to beat you up. We're not here to condemn you. We're not here to say, what have you been doing? We're here to say, hey, this is where you're at. Let's make 2024 a year where we take the next step. Let's make 2024 a year where we embrace spiritual growth and, the, and the, the maturation process of a disciple because this matters. It matters more than, than human physical development. It matters that we grow to maturity in Christ. This is what God wants for your life. And so we've tried very hard not to make this negative in any way. However, depending on your sensitivity to such things, there may be times when you feel, you feel like you're being picked on. Not, hopefully not from us, but you're gonna have that inner voice that says, well, I don't, I don't like where I'm being placed on this discipleship pathway. I consider myself this, and, it's, and, and you're saying I'm this. Well, that's not the intent. The intent is this is a spiritual mirror. 
wanna hold this up and say, look, every one of us got up this morning and looked in the mirror and there were some things that needed attended to, right? You might've had some stuff in your eyes, your hair might've been all over the place, you might've had an imprint of the sheets on, on the side. You had things that needed attended to, right? And without a mirror, you would've probably showed up looking like that. And that's what we want this to be spiritually. We want this to be a mirror to say, okay, here's where I'm at. I now have the tools to grow into spiritual maturity. And it's okay if we don't all do that at the same pace. It's, it's okay if we're not all on the same page, but it's not okay for us to say spiritual growth doesn't matter. It's not okay to say, well, I'm not gonna give any attention to that because that's not what followers of Christ do. As born-again believers, as Christians, if you are, and if, if not, if you're a seeker, then, then we welcome you to explore being a seeker here. In fact, we've established a small group that has one goal in mind, and that is to welcome seekers to ask spiritual questions. That obviously our intent is that you, you go from being a seeker to a believer, we're the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're always going to want to accomplish. But we've tried to create an environment where, you're, where you feel like it's okay to just explore. And, and Pastor Greg is leading that class on Tuesday nights and he's gonna, uh, he's gonna attempt to answer a lot of your questions about the Bible and about G why do we say Jesus is the only way to God? All these things that people get hung up on because that's what seekers need. They need honest answers to honest questions. And they need to hear them from somebody that cares about them and does so in a friendly way. And so if you're a seeker, we invite you to that class. Okay. I had to say a lot about this process because it's important to us. That's what we're building this sermon series off of. That's what we're gonna attempt to accomplish in 2024 is help you grow. And you may not take one big leap. You may, you, you, you may not find yourself in another phase of this pathway at the end of the year, but it, we just wanna help you take steps. We wanna help you take steps, and we wanna help you help the people around you take those steps as well. So, I've gotta end that there, because I haven't preached my sermon yet. Good thing the Steelers aren't playing at one o'clock today. <laughs> However, I, this, this will be a shorter than normal sermon, um, but we, we got a ways to go here. We're, we'll probably run a little bit later than we normally do. In considering this spiritual, this discipleship pathway, like, like I said, last week we looked at respond, this week we wanna look at be baptized. This comes from, this scripture won't be on your screen, but Matthew 28, this is what we call the Great Commission. It's Jesus' command to his disciples. Post-resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and he says this, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Think about the discipleship pathway. He wants us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's at least three things in here I hope you I hope make you think of that discipleship pathway and make sense of it. Jesus says, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe. Teach them to obey. To, to be a Christian 
is not just to believe certain things about Jesus. It's not just to believe. That is, that is the beginning. To believe that Jesus died for you is the very beginning of the Christian life. Really, the Christian life involves being baptized. It involves learning to observe everything that he has commanded. It involves learning to understand that he is with you always. And so baptism is a significant piece of this. Baptism has, Jesus gave us two ordinances which every, every church everywhere throughout all of church history are commanded to observe. One, the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, the taking of the bread and the wine or like most of us do in our American culture, the grape juice, <laughs> the taking of the Lord's Supper together as a remembrance of what Jesus has done on our behalf and the other is baptism. We are to baptize believers into the Christian faith, into the kingdom, into the family of God. One, we do regularly the Lord's Supper. One, we only have to do once. Baptism is meant to be a one-time expression of your faith. So let me give you three things that are significant as we think about baptism. If you have the handout in front of you, go ahead and flip it over to the back. Let's fill in some of these blanks together. The first one, baptism is a public declaration of your salvation and faith. It's a public declaration of your salvation and faith. Baptism is an opportunity, it's a one-time opportunity to say a significant transition has taken place in my life. I have gone from death to life. I have gone from lost to found, to, from unsaved to saved. I have gone from seeker to believer. I have gone from non-believer to believer in Jesus Christ. I have become a Christian. I have given my life to Jesus Christ who died for me, forgives my sins, and promises me eternal life. And that should be declared. We declare every other thing that happens in our lives. If you get engaged, you post it on social media. If you get a new job, you, you, you post it on social media. If you move into a new city, you post. We declare everything that happens in our lives. But we often don't declare the most important thing that happens to us. And so baptism is a way that, that all throughout church history, Christians have used as an opportunity to publicly declare. Baptism, if if you want to think of it this way, it's, <laughs> baptism's dramatic. Let me leave it at that. Baptism is dramatic. You take a, you, 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 you take a, a, a human being and you, we have a, I don't know, some of you maybe haven't been here, but there's a, a baptismal behind that uh, screen there of this big, huge tub. So, it was so funny when we moved in here uh, and we were getting this building ready um, some of the kids that were helping and stuff would say things like, why is there a big bathtub on the stage? <laughs> well, that bathtub is actually a baptismal. You take an a, a adult, free-willed human being and you submerge them in water in front of a bunch of people. It's, all, it's almost humiliating in a sense, or at least humbling. It's, you're submitting yourself to a dramatic act in front of your peers. And it's meant 
to be so. Not meant to be humiliating, it's meant to be dramatic. It's meant to make a public declaration. I'm saying unashamedly, every time I do a wedding, I say at the end of the wedding, you have unashamedly shared your vows in front of all of these witnesses. Baptism is an opportunity to declare unashamedly in front of friends and family, in front of peers, in front of the whole world, as much as we can get them to pay attention. I have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a public declaration of your salvation of faith. This is an important step because Jesus calls us to publicly follow him. Sometimes we wanna keep it a secret. We're like, we don't want everybody to know that this dramatic change has happened inside of us. We're afraid of what they might say. We're afraid of what they might think. We're afraid of how the relationship might change. I remember when I came to Christ as a teenager and, and, and God started to dramatically change the way I acted. I remember my friends making fun of me. Uh, they would just tease me for being a Christian now and make jokes. Uh, um, well, just make jokes, you know. It's meant to be that way, not the teasing necessarily, but it, there's meant to be a, a dramatic change that is accompanied by a public declaration Jesus says in Luke chapter nine, very important to hear this passage. If you are ashamed of your relationship with Christ, you need to hear this passage. Jesus says, or says in Luke nine, verse 23, they said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, and the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Those, those are sobering words. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... The son of man, that's Jesus, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory in that of the Father and the Holy. Think, think not about what your friends will say about you now. Think about what your Savior will say about you at his return. Don't live in the fear of what man might say. Live in the fear of failing your eternal Savior. That's why baptism is so public. That's why it's so bold. That's why it's so dramatic. It's because we're, we're throwing off the chains and we're saying to the world, I'm a believer. I'm one of those crazy Jesus people now. And you should be too. As we think about baptism being a public declaration of your salvation of faith, what does this say of the practice of many churches today of infant baptism. I, I wanna, with each of these three points, I wanna, I wanna point to something that it sort of corrects. In infant baptism, what's, what's lost in infant baptism? Well, the main thing that is lost is there's, there's no public declaration of faith. <laughs> that infant has not expressed faith. That infant has not experienced faith. And, and so the, the whole idea, the whole biblical idea of this being a public declaration of going from life to death is lost. This is, this is parents, well, let me be careful because 
I know a lot of us have participated in this in various ways, but infant baptism is not a public declaration of, of that child's faith. It at best is a public declaration of the parent's faith, which we think is better exemplified through child dedication like we did today. That's why we don't do infant baptism. We do child dedication where the, if the parents rightfully want to say, I desire for my child to know Christ, then we think that's an appropriate way of doing it. Furthermore, we see no, no example in scripture of anybody being baptized prior to expressing faith. Baptism always follows the expression of faith. Okay, so that's the first point. The second point is this. Baptism is a reenactment of our being united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a reenactment of our being united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. The, the image and the symbolism of baptism by submersion is so important in scripture. Paul mentions it in several places. I wanna read two of them. Romans chapter six, verse three says, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. There's a beautiful image being displayed in baptism. We go down into, this sounds a little bit morbid, okay? I don't wanna scare anybody away from baptism. It's, it's, it's a very exciting experience. But we, the, the symbolism, the image is we're going down into the grave. The good news is we're not really dying. <laughs> the good news is Jesus has died for us and we immediately receive unity with him in his resurrection, we go down into death, the death that he died so that we don't have to, and we come back into the resurrection to life that we cannot achieve in and of ourselves. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of what Jesus has done spiritually. It's a reenactment of us. When Jesus died, he didn't die for himself. When Jesus rose, he, 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 he wasn't resurrected for himself alone. He's doing this for all who would become believers. And so we're reenacting that through baptism. We're saying, I identify with Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And just as he died, so my sins have been paid for through death. And just as he rose, so I too live forever with him. What an awesome picture. Colossians chapter two, verse 12 Paul refers to when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What then of sprinkling baptism? We believe in baptism by submersion, by dunking people in water. Many people believe in baptism by sprinkling or by pouring, which is by definition, not baptism. However, it, it, I understand the symbolism. It's a symbolic practice, but it loses this entire illustration, which is just so easily demonstrated through baptism by submersion. Having a little bit of water poured over your head doesn't quite convey the image of death to life. It doesn't quite convey our unity with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we are 
we baptize, baptize by submersion. We want to get people underwater. <laughs> now, there are exceptions. It's, we'll talk about this in a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about this next. Not in a little bit. We're getting there right now. But um, there are exceptions. There might be people who, for various reasons, can't be baptized by submersion. And in that case, it's extremely legitimate and it's very appropriate to baptize through sprinkling or pouring. We've seen people, I've seen, I've never, actually never personally done that, um, but I've seen others be baptized who, who had uh, either special needs or something that limited them from getting into the water and being submerged. And, and that should be considered legitimate. But the norm should be baptism by submersion. Thirdly and lastly, baptism is an act of obedience. Baptism is a public declaration of your salvation and faith. Baptism is a reenactment of our being united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and ultimately baptism is an act of obedience. That's why we put it where we put it on the discipleship pathway. To, be, to go from being a believer to a follower you must take steps of obedience. And the first step of obedience commanded to us is to be baptized. This answers the question, well, this leads to the answer to two different questions. One, does baptism save me? Am I saved when I'm baptized? And the other question is, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Can I go to heaven if I'm not baptized? Let me, let me answer those questions very briefly and then try to expound on them. Does baptism save me? No. It, it is a reenactment of what saves you. Your faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is what saves you. Baptism is an act of obedience. It's a public declaration. It's a way to show to the world outwardly what has happened inwardly. Baptism does not save us. And also, uh, a similar question, do I have to be baptized to be saved? We know that there are people who have been saved. Well, there's at least one significant example in Scripture of somebody who was saved and who was not baptized. And that is the thief on the cross who died with Jesus. How do we know he was saved? Jesus says he was saved. <laughs> and so that's pretty helpful. And we know that that man did not have the opportunity to get down off the cross and be baptized. He, they weren't able to say to the Roman soldiers standing guard, hey, can we take a moment and take a break from the crucifixion here? Can you get me down and let's do this baptism real quick? No, we know that he's not baptized and yet we see this affirmation from Jesus that he is saved. That logically lines up with everything else that we believe about salvation. It's an act of obedience that it publicly declares outwardly what has happened inwardly. And so you can be saved without being baptized. However, if you have the opportunity to be baptized, to not be baptized is disobedience. It is commanded. It is an act of obedience that Jesus himself submitted himself to. Let me give you a couple examples from scripture. Acts chapter two, verse 37 says, and this was after Peter had preached to the Jews gathered in Jerusalem shortly after the resurrection of Jesus. When they, he preached the, the message of the gospel to him and then it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, join a church, start giving, make sure you show up three to four Sundays out of the month. No, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. 
What should, we heard the gospel, we believe, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so those, I'm skipping to verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. How long did it take to baptize 3,000 people? It's awesome though, isn't it? What should we do? Repent and be baptized. That was commanded. Like I said earlier, this is a command that Jesus himself submitted himself to. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a, phys- in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. It is at Jesus's baptism that God in the form of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends on Jesus and the voice of God the Father proclaims audibly for everyone to hear, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. If for no other reason, you ought to be baptized because your savior was baptized and commands you to do so. Isn't it amazing to think, I wish I could be baptized again. (laughs) Isn't it amazing to think that in baptism we can do something that Jesus himself did while he was on the earth? Jesus submitted himself to be baptized, though he had no sins that needed to be forgiven. He submitted himself to be baptized. Baptism is an act of obedience. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be baptized. If you have not been baptized as a believer, let me, oh, I guess, and there may be other questions you need me to answer. I'd be happy to, to, to attempt to do so. If you've been baptized as an infant, if you have been baptized or as a child, apart from having expressed saving faith, I would encourage you to be baptized as a believer. That is the one instance in which I would encourage a second baptism. Um, I wouldn't say, I'd, I would encourage it. I'll just say it, leave it at that. I would encourage it. Um, in fact, to become a member of Redemption Church, it is required uh, that you be baptized as a believer. That does not mean what your parents did didn't have meaning. It does not mean that their uh, desire wasn't exactly what it appears to have been. Um, it just means that we have to follow biblical precedent matters and we have to follow what the Bible says. And the Bible expresses baptism as an act of obedience for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's okay if, if you've done something other than that. All of this is, again, this is a spiritual mirror We want to grow, we want to take the next steps, we want to see where we need to grow, we might even want to see where we have erred. And so I would encourage you, if you have not been baptized as a believer, to do so. If you have been baptized as a believer, don't do it again. (laughs) You don't have to do it again. It's a one-time event. Jesus didn't, wasn't crucified, and he didn't get buried, and he didn't resurrect from the grave many times, he did it once. And you may say, well, I did it a long time ago and then I fell away and now I came back and I want to express that I've come back. Well, express it in other ways. 
express it, it through obedience to Christ in any of the any other commands that he has given to us. But baptism ought to be a one-time thing once you have believed in Christ. So if you have questions about that, feel free to reach out and ask us. If you want to talk to one of the pastors about being baptized, there's a, a thing on the Connect card that says I'm interested in baptism. You can fill that out, drop that in the offering when it comes around. You can also fill that out online at any time. And we will have uh, baptisms as part of our Easter service, which isn't that far away. I know it's like as January as January gets right now, but Easter's coming at the end of March. And so it's not that far off. So let us know if you would like to be baptized. Would you pray with me as we return to worship? Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful image of baptism. And Jesus, thank you for first submitting yourself to be baptized as if you had any sin to repent of. And yet to set an example for us, you submitted yourself to baptism, but way more importantly, you submitted yourself to what baptism symbolizes for us. You submitted yourself to death and burial and resurrection on our behalf. You, the God who gave life to every creature that ever lived, allowed yourself to be crucified by your rebellious creation. You submitted yourself to death, even death on a cross, out of your love for us. Thank you. Father, we want to grow as disciples. We want to be obedient to your commands. We want to reflect to this world the life that you have given us. May we be unashamed. May we boldly and publicly declare our faith in you. Father, if there's anybody here who has questions about baptism or if this brings up anything uncomfortable, if this brings up anything they need to work through, God, may, we, may that process just be covered in your grace. May no one feel condemned, may no one feel judged, may everyone feel challenged though to obey you and to, to follow your commands. We love you, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.